You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Deep joy and much celebration this morning. You can tell it's a special day on our church calendar because like Ken, like a third of the congregation was clapping along to the beat and the song, like 33%. That's pretty good for eFree. That's awesome. Good job. Big celebration for us today. All because of a Sunday morning that happened about 2,000 years ago in the pre-dawn light where a group of women, among them Mary Magdalene and Mary, little James's mother, and Salome and Joanna and a few others, gathered some burial spices and anointing oil and made their way through the streets of Jerusalem to the tomb of Jesus that was just outside of the city walls. The start of the Sabbath a couple of days ago, had prevented them from finishing the burial rituals. And out of love for Jesus, they wanted to complete those rituals. And so they left while the streets were still dark. And on the way to the tomb, they started to wonder amongst themselves who would roll the stone away. They had seen where Joseph, one of the religious leaders in Jerusalem and a secret follower of Jesus, laid Jesus' body, and the tomb was carved out of rock, and Joseph, after he had laid the body in the tomb, rolled a very large stone in front of it to seal it, and they knew that it was too big for them to move on their own, and yet out of their faithful love for their rabbi, the same faithful love that had kept them from fleeing as Jesus was crucified, they were compelled to go to the tomb anyway. They'd just figure it out when they got there, but they couldn't help but wondering who would roll the stone away. Their eyes cast down by sorrow and perhaps to keep from tripping over the roots and rocks in the pre-dawn light, they approached the burial site and looked up and they saw the stone had been rolled away already. Going into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe seated on the right side and Matthew's report of this event tells us that he was an angel of the Lord and he was the one who had been responsible for rolling the stone away. And it says they were startled. I love the understatement of scripture, right? They were startled. Like, yeah, we were a little scared. But he said to them, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples. This is not what they were expecting. I mean, how could it be? To be fair, Jesus had repeatedly told them that he was going to rise again from the dead, but nobody believed him. And why would they? They know like we know. Dead people don't come back to life. Jesus was always talking in metaphors and allegories and allusions. So maybe this was just another one because dead people don't come back to life. But Jesus really rose from the dead. This is what we affirm when, when you repeated back after Luke said he is risen, you said he is risen indeed. In common English today, that would be he really rose. He really rose from the dead. Now I know that we're tempted to see ourselves as more sophisticated and enlightened than the simple beings, people that lived in the first century, but the reality is that resurrection was just as hard for them to believe as it is for us to believe. Resurrection was not a common motif in mythology or theology, and it was certainly not an expectation of the day. 
In John's account of the resurrection, in fact, we see the, the doubt and the disbelief that crept in. And, and kids, thank you so much for being in the service with us today. If you look in your bag on the back of the activity pack, you'll see sermon notes that you can fill out as, you, as we go along. And almost everything else is going to be on the screen, but this one's not going to be on the screen. So you'll have to listen to me to fill in the blank. John's account of the resurrection tells us that when Mary Magdalene got to the tomb and saw that it was empty, she thought that somebody had stolen his body, moved it, perhaps as a final act of disrespect or, or degradation to the body to prevent his followers maybe from completing their burial ritual, somebody had stolen it. Matthew's account of Jesus' life at the very end, after his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days talking to various groups of them and meeting various groups of them and then gathers them together on top of the mountain and he is about to ascend into heaven and it says, Matthew says, some of them still doubted. It doesn't say specifically what they doubted, but it's not too hard for us to imagine, right? Can you imagine being there? Is this really real? Is that really Jesus? Am I just imagining this, dreaming this? Is he really alive? Because they knew, just like we do, dead people don't come back to life. And yet Jesus really rose from the dead. It's just as incredible then as it is now. It's not too long after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven that people begin to question not only did it happen, they're mainly convinced about that, but what does it mean that it, did, that it happened? Specifically, what does it mean for those who are dying before Jesus returns? And yes, that's part of the story. Jesus is coming back, but it's another topic for another day. This question is the question asked by a first century church in the city of Corinth. Paul, who was a missionary, had taken the message of Jesus, the gospel, to that city and established a church there. But now they were waiting for Jesus to come back and some of them were dying and they wondered what it meant. What does it mean for us and for them that Jesus really rose from the dead? And Paul begins to explain it for them, the implications of it. But before he does that, he establishes again for them the historical reality of Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection. He does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start in verse 3. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. This is formulaic language indicating that what Paul is about to say doesn't originate with Paul. It's an early statement of faith of the early Christian church. It's an early creed. And it's an intact statement of faith that Paul has received and he had passed on intact to the church in Corinth. It's not an interpretation of what he heard. It's not a summary of what he had been told. He passed on to them intact the most important common faith statement of the early church. Why is this important? Because it means that what Paul's about to say, Paul didn't make up. It didn't originate with him. He didn't come to this belief independently of himself. It means that if you're going to question the reality of the resurrection, you're not just arguing with Paul, you have to take on the whole early church. Paul continues, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. 
Jesus' execution by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans is attested to by multiple historical first century documents, including those in scripture, but also those outside of scripture. Non-religious historical figures testify to the fact that there was a man named Jesus who was executed by crucifixion just outside of Jerusalem. More recently, peer-reviewed Medical and scientific journals have concluded that Jesus was, was executed by crucifixion. And there are scholars, some of them who don't even believe in God at all, but who will say that there, it's indisputable that there was a man named Jesus who was executed by the Romans outside of Jerusalem. So there's not much cause to question the historical fact that a man named Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire. The key phrase for us is this, Christ died for our sins. His death had meaning for us. His death was to replace the destiny that we deserve because of our sin, because of all the bad things that we've done and the good things that we've left undone, because of all the attitudes that we've adopted that aren't aligned with God's attitudes, because of the values that we've affirmed that oppose Jesus's values, because of the ways that we've contributed to the division and decay and destruction in our world. Jesus died for all that so you wouldn't have to face the punishment for it. He took it on himself. This is so important. This is vital for you to understand, but it's not Paul's main point here. We reflected on this on Good Friday, and we reflect on it often on Sundays as we gather together, so keep coming back to hear what it means that Christ died for our sins. But today is Easter Sunday. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Paul continues, he was buried, verse 4, he was buried and he was raised again on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Now we've come to the main point. A few lines later in his letter, Paul's going to say, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And just after that, he's going to say, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, it essentially makes his death meaningless, and you have not been forgiven from your sins. Paul's saying the key piece of evidence for our faith, for our belief in Jesus, that it is true, is that Jesus rose from the dead. The key piece of evidence that Jesus was not just one of many dissidents executed by the Romans. The key piece of evidence that Jesus' death had meaning for us is that he rose again. The key piece of evidence that, that this isn't just a legend or a metaphor or a symbol or some spiritual fairy tale is that Jesus really rose from the dead. It's the foundation for everything else that we believe. Paul says, if you can prove that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then our entire faith crumbles. So how can we be sure then if this is the key evidence? Paul continues, again, picking up verse 4. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Paul's evidence for the resurrection, for the reality of the resurrection, is the eyewitness testimony of those who have met the resurrected Jesus. And he lists a whole bunch of witnesses. 
He completely skips the women who saw him first. I don't know why, we're not gonna get into that today. But his point is clear. If you want to dismiss the resurrection as a fairy tale or a symbol or a metaphor or a legend, then you have to account for and contend with the eyewitness accounts. Paul didn't start there, but let's start ourselves there. Let's start with the women. They didn't just see, or they didn't just hear, sorry, that Jesus was alive from the angel. They saw Jesus. They, they touched Jesus. Matthew reports that on their way from the tomb, as they're going to tell the disciples what the angel had told them, Jesus met them, and they fell down before him and grabbed onto his feet. In that moment, they knew that this was not a vision, this was not a hallucination, this was not a ghost. They felt bones and skin. They knew Jesus really rose from the dead. And then Peter saw him. And then the 12, which is a way of referring to Jesus' 12 disciples, although technically there was only 11 of them at the time because Judas, the traitor, was no longer alive, but the 12 kind of stuck as a nickname. And then 500 of his followers all at once. That's about a crowd the size of what's gathered here right now all saw Jesus at the same time after he was resurrected. And by stating that, that most of them are alive, Paul's essentially inviting the Christians in Corinth. If you doubt that Jesus really rose from the dead, you can go talk to any one of them and they'll tell you they saw him. And then he seems to anticipate an objection. Well, yeah, Paul, but those were already all his followers. Maybe they just wanted to believe that Jesus' death wasn't the end so badly that they just kind of hallucinated Jesus' presence with them. They just imagined Jesus' presence with them. It was more of a faith vision than a real presence, a real person. So Paul includes the testimony of two people who weren't followers of Jesus until after they saw Jesus resurrected. Verse 7, then he was seen by James. James is Jesus' brother. He's one of the part of the family who came to take Jesus away, essentially to put him away, to hide him from the public spotlight because they thought he was crazy. In John's report of Jesus' life, it says, not even his brothers, which would include James, not even his brothers believed in him. And then all of a sudden, James shows up as a leader of the community of Christians in Jerusalem. What happened? Paul tells us. He met the resurrected Jesus, and it changed everything. It transformed him from a doubter and a detractor to a devoted disciple of Jesus. There's another eyewitness you have to account for and contend with, and he seems like a pretty formidable foe. It's Paul, verse 8. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul wasn't just a cynic. He wasn't just a skeptic. He wasn't just a doubter of Jesus. He was an extremist in his opposition to the idea that Jesus was the promised one who had come from God, that his death was for anything, let alone for our sins, and that Jesus had risen from the dead. He was so opposed to the idea that he actively pursued, arrested, jailed, and even executed those who professed faith in Jesus, who believed that Jesus really rose from the dead. And then... He met Jesus, he saw him, he heard his voice, and it totally transformed him. 
He went from an extreme persecutor of the faith to a devoted disciple of Jesus. Jesus really rose from the dead. And now it's possible that all of these eyewitnesses were lying, but it would have been so easy, especially in that day, to prove the lie. All the religious and political leaders would have had to do is produce the body, but they didn't because they couldn't. In fact, we know that they came up with an alternate story early on. Matthew's report records that, that Pilate provided soldiers to guard Jesus' tomb because there was this rumor that Jesus had taught that he was going to rise again on the third day. And while the disciples kind of took that metaphorically and symbolically, the religious leaders were afraid that it was really going to happen or that his disciples were going to come and steal the body and pretend that it happened. So Pilate gave them a squad of soldiers to guard the tomb to make sure. And the angel that rolled away the stone scared the soldiers so completely that they passed out, slightly startled the women, but caused these men <laughs> to pass out from fear. And when they came to, the body was gone. And I'm sure with deep trembling and fear, they went and reported it to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders paid them off to tell the story that the disciples had come and overpowered them. A group of fishermen and a tax collector overpowered an elite squad of soldiers, almost as believable as the women being startled by the angels. And the reason that Matthew knew that, it, that these soldiers had been paid off is likely because some, if not all of the soldiers, converted to the faith. Because they knew it wasn't disciples who showed up to roll that stone away. They knew that Jesus really rose from the dead. So you can be cynical about the resurrection, but you have to account for and contend with the eyewitnesses and the missing body. You cannot just dismiss this as a legend, and you cannot minimize it as spiritual or symbolic or a metaphor. Jesus really rose from the dead. Just as we can't reduce it to a metaphor, we also cannot reduce Jesus' resurrection to to just a historical event. Something, something else that we memorize or accept, like we accept that World War I ended in 1918 or that Mount St. Helens started to erupt in March 27, 1980 and then fully erupt, erupted a couple months later in May. It's not less than a historical fact and it's so much more than that. Paul goes on to say that because Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything, including death, that if we put our faith in Jesus, we can be sure that we will rise from the dead too if we die before he comes back, that we live in a universe where death, decay, and destruction are the rule, but suddenly in Jesus, there's this massive reversal. There's this massive exception to that rule, and it changes everything. The way that it always was isn't the way it always is anymore. And so we can be rescued from death, decay, and destruction. We may die physically before Jesus returns, but death is no longer the end of the story. Death no longer gets the final word. And, and we, the good news is that we can enter into this new rule of life simply by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, which means committing to live in submission to the way of Jesus, to adopt his values and align our lives with his attitudes and priorities, and by believing in your heart that, what? 
that God raised him from the dead, that he really rose from the dead, which means that we learn to see all of life through the lens of the resurrection. We see our relationships through the reality of the resurrection. If the resurrection reverses death, decay, and discord, we can constantly live in the hope of real reconciliation no matter how broken our relationship is. We live in the hope of of absolute relational reconciliation, of racial reconciliation, of economic reconciliation, of social reconciliation because Jesus really rose from the dead. Because Jesus really rose from the dead, we see our work differently. It affects what we spend our energy on. We no longer just work for temporary comfort and pleasure because our lives are such a short little dash compared to what is to come compared to eternity. So we want to work for things that will last, things that will matter in eternity. And when we find those things, when we work for restoration and renewal and reconciliation, we can do it enthusiastically. We can give ourselves completely to it because we know that work matters, not just for this lifetime, but for eternity. And the resurrection reveals that the work that we begin for reconciliation and restoration and renewal in our life will be completed someday. It, it's not wasted effort It matters, and it's not for nothing. Because Jesus really rose from the dead. And because Jesus really rose from the dead, it transforms how we see our suffering. Suffering doesn't define us. It's not the end of the story. We're defined by our new destiny. We're resurrection people. Not only is suffering no longer the rule, it's also not meaningless. It's not for nothing. All of our suffering, all of our sacrifice, all of our sorrow is being written into God's redemptive story. The resurrection tells us this. Just as Jesus reversed death to bring even better life, God can take all of that, all of your sorrow and suffering and sacrifice and transform it into something beautifully redemptive. And we can walk that road and through that valley with with confidence. It doesn't mean we feel it any less. It doesn't mean that it's not broken and we can't lament it. But we know because Jesus really rose from the dead that in the end, God will redeem it and he will reward us. Maybe not in this lifetime, but the resurrection reminds us that there is more to life than this lifetime. I could go on and on and on and tell you all the ways that resurrection can and should affect our present experience and alter our destiny and transform our perspective, but I'd rather show you and I'd rather have other people tell the story And so we've invited a group of people to to write their story on cardboard. And it's going to start with kind of what life was like when they weren't viewing it through the light of the resurrection. And then they'll flip it over and show you what life is like or the new perspective that they have because Jesus really rose from the dead. And as they share their stories, you need to know that these stories are not complete. We haven't reached the end yet. But these people share their stories in the confidence that their story will be complete and it will be redeemed because Jesus really rose from the dead. Our world is not geared for resurrection. Like the women on the way to the tomb wondered, 
who's going to roll away the stone. We may be going through circumstances in our life right now that seem insurmountable, that seem like death is still the rule. And we may wonder who's going to remove those obstacles, roll away those stones that keep us from living in true freedom and true fulfillment and true joy. And the resurrection reminds us the stone is already rolled away. And the reality of the resurrection tells us that he's still rolling stones away today. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.